Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's a widely held misconception that our medieval ancestors believed the world was flat. This was not the case. They had a much better understanding of geography than we often give them credit for. While they may have been unable to definitively prove the matter, many medieval thinkers believed the earth was round. As early as 1492, the German mapmaker Martin Beheim had even managed to depict the world on a globe. Overall, his was a pretty decent effort. There is one major omission, of course. The Americas, they were completely unknown to Beheim. Christopher Columbus was only preparing to leave Europe when he completed the globe. However, it's another geographical blind spot of a sort on this globe that concerns us in this podcast. It's clear from Beheim's globe that he and his contemporaries had, at best, a basic understanding of Irish geography. He presumably based his information off conversations he had with mariners and traders, but the coastline of Ireland is completely the wrong shape and he only named three locations. Two of these, the ports of Waterford and Yall, located on the southern coast, were presumably frequented by continental sailors, who Beheim may have met on the docks of European ports, but the third and final location he named is strange to say the least. While major settlements like Dublin, Drogheda and Cork are absent, Beheim included the tiny Station Island located on Loch Derg in Donegal on his globe. Remote in the 21st century, this was at the very edge of the known world in the 1490s. Yet it does make sense that Beheim would include this on his globe. While the island may only measure 50 metres in width by 200 metres in length and had no strategic value whatsoever, it was one of the most famous locations in Ireland in the late Middle Ages. Remote as it may have been, it was nevertheless a place of immense importance in the medieval understanding of the wider world. Known as St. Patrick's Purgatory, the stories, myths and legends about this remote island were known not only in Ireland but across the Christian world from London to the Crusader kingdoms of the Middle East. Nearly every medieval map of Europe from the 1200s onwards marks this tiny island. This was because it was widely believed that a small cave on Station Island was a gateway that linked this world to the afterlife. Now there's no question that a cave or tunnel of some sort did exist in the Middle Ages. However, what lay within it is lost to history. In the late 15th century, that cave was blocked up and no one has set foot inside it since the 1490s. However, in the three centuries before it was sealed up, the cave attracted 
intrepid travellers from across the medieval world. Among their number was the Catalan Viscount Ramon de Perlos, who completed a pilgrimage to St. Patrick's Purgatory on Station Island in 1397 in a journey that brought him to what he considered the edge of the world. While a gateway to the afterlife proved elusive, the Catalan did complete a 2,000-kilometre journey by land and sea through late medieval Europe and wrote an account of what happened on this trip. In this podcast, we're going to follow in the steps of Ramon de Perilos as he ventured through medieval Europe. Starting in the warm, sunny climes of medieval France in 1397, we'll see how someone planned the pilgrimage without the aid of TripAdvisor, Airbnb or Google Maps. Indeed, he had no detailed map of any kind. Along the way, he encountered some of the most remarkable sights of the Middle Ages. He passed through a kingdom ruled by a monarch who thought he was made of glass. He ran the gauntlet that was medieval sea travel, ventured down remote roads and across medieval frontiers. However, what is perhaps the most fascinating part of his account is the final leg of his journey that took him through Gaelic-Irish society. This was unlike any other medieval society in Europe at the time, and today it's astonishing that this existed in Ireland 500 years ago. The customs of the people, their values and day-to-day life in Gaelic Ireland were so far removed from what even de Perlos was used to, let alone what we might expect, makes it all the more fascinating. Now before we set off on this pilgrimage of a sort, we should get acquainted if you're tuning in for the first time. My name is Finn Dewar and this is the Irish History Podcast. The intention of creating this episode was to try and create an immersive experience where you could get some sense of what medieval Europe was like. If you want an ad-free version of this episode to totally lose yourself in the content, that is available for supporters on Patreon and Acast+. If you enjoyed this episode, which is pretty different from the normal show, do let me know because I try and follow listener feedback as much as possible. So if you like this, it's worth getting in touch because I'll try and make more of them. Sound on the episode is by Kate Dunley. Ramon de Perlos's decision to embark on a pilgrimage in the medieval world was not one he could have taken lightly. Indeed, before the 19th century, long-distance travel of any kind was uncomfortable and dangerous, basically an ordeal. It also took people far from their comfort zones. Most people in the medieval world, after all, lived their lives within a day or two's walk of home. Only the more adventurous in spirit travelled further. This would, after all, take you far away from your kith and kin into unfamiliar, unknown and potentially dangerous territory. Now, when he decided to visit St. Patrick's Purgatory in modern Donegal, the Catalan noble Ramon de Perlos was then in his late 40s and he was, it should be said, an exceedingly well-travelled man at the time. Although Catalan by birth, he was educated at the French court before spending years as a sea captain in the Mediterranean where he commanded galleys. He also served the kings of Aragon as an ambassador. However, even with this experience, Ireland was still somewhere he was not familiar with. The Kingdom of Aragon, where he lived, straddled the borders of modern Spain and France and its people, including Ramon de Perilos, always looked south towards the Mediterranean. 
the prospect of travelling to the far northwest of Europe ran against his instinct and understanding of the world. Nevertheless, in late summer of 1397, the Perlis set his mind on a pilgrimage to St. Patrick's Purgatory and began preparations, or at least what preparations he could make. Opting to travel by land as much as possible, his general route, therefore, would take him through the Kingdom of France to the port of Calais on the north coast. Then, after crossing the English Channel, he would traverse medieval England and Wales, where he would take ship to Ireland. Now, these directions might seem vague, but believe it or not, De Perilos would have struggled to get anything more precise than this. In a world without detailed roadmaps or signposts to guide him, once he ventured beyond roads he personally knew himself from experience, he would be reliant on local directions to guide him. This ignorance of the route, however, may have been bliss. Had De Perilos known what lay ahead of him, he might never have left home. A later visitor who reached Loch Derg and St. Patrick's Purgatory described the landscape which surrounded it in the following terms. It is almost inaccessible by horsemen, even in summer, because of the great bogs, rocks and precipices with which it is environed on all sides. Now, difficult as the journey ahead of him was, the late 14th century, and the 1390s in particular, was not the worst time to embark on a journey across northern Europe. The previous decades had witnessed unparalleled warfare in the Kingdom of France in the opening campaigns of the 100 Years' War. Marauding armies had crisscrossed the land, burning, murdering and looting as they went. However, in the 1390s, a brittle peace had been forged between the respective kings of England and France. This peace had been cemented by what was a disturbing marriage that had seen the 28-year-old King of England, Richard II, married the daughter of the King of France, Princess Isabella. She had no choice in the matter. She was only six years old at the time. It was agreed that the marriage would not be consummated until Isabella turned 12, and luckily for the child, her husband was dead before her 12th birthday. However, we digress. As interesting as this may be, these are not people who will influence our journey. The peace of the 1390s, however, did ensure that Ramon de Perilos would pass north through the Kingdom of France without fear of being caught up in a war. It also meant he could travel across England without suspicion falling on him that he was a foreign spy. By September 1397, de Perilos was putting the final arrangements in place. His later account of his journey, designed to enhance his reputation, intimated he travelled alone for large parts of his journey, but this was not the case. He was joined by his sons, Luis and Ramon Jr., and a nephew called Bernat. He also brought well over a dozen servants of one kind or another with him. His entire party numbered around 20 men and 30 horses. Having assembled this group in the French city of Avignon, they set out northwards on September the 9th, 1397. Their timing, however, was a little curious. As the horses made their noisy way through the cobbled streets of Avignon, with the warm autumn sun at their backs, the group were surely apprehensive about what lay ahead. While their destination may have been a fabled gateway to the afterlife, they would first have to complete a journey on horseback, and a northern European winter in particular would inflict some of the worst weather these men had ever endured. 
At best, they could hope to reach Ireland in late November or early December, when they would face biting Atlantic winds, carrying unrelenting rain as they moved northwestwards. They could potentially even face winter snows on the return leg of this journey, if they survived. Nevertheless, the opening leg of the journey through the late summer and early autumn in southern France was pleasant. Through September, they made their way through what was still familiar terrain, although they took an intentionally circuitous and long route which took them by way of the city of Paris to the port of Calais. This brought them into a much-changed environment from the farmlands of central France they had ambled through in the opening leg of the journey. Paris in 1397 was a city of 275,000 inhabitants. Large as it was by medieval standards, no one could describe Paris or any other medieval city, for that matter, as sprawling. The French capital was a tightly packed, noisy warren where over a quarter of a million people lived cheek by jowl. Buildings in narrow streets leaned over the thoroughfares, trapping the stench that emanated from the mass of unwashed bodies, smoky fires and latrines. The noise was also an assault on the ears. Animals, blacksmiths, traders, the sounds of daily life was a dramatic shift from the serenity of the countryside that had taken them to Paris. Ramon de Perilos had come to this city, however, to visit the court of the French king Charles VI. Having been educated at the court as a boy, he was well acquainted with the officials and he secured letters of introduction which would grant him safe passage through England, basically a medieval equivalent of a passport. However, de Perelos probably did not delay long at the royal court. While he diplomatically omitted details of his time with Charles VI from his account, the French court was a very dangerous place by the late 1390s. The king was suffering from bouts of severe mental illness which led him to believe he was made from glass and liable to shatter. Unable to rule, those who surrounded him eyed up power and the court was increasingly dominated by plotters and schemers. So leaving the foul stench of Paris and the intrigues of court behind him, de Perilos led his party northwestwards, eventually reaching the port of Calais in late October. It was seven weeks since they had first set out and the group was now covering an average of 20 kilometres a day. All things considered, this wasn't bad progress. Medieval roads were scarcely worthy of the name. Maintained by respective lords in each region, they varied wildly in quality from place to place. Where possible, the pilgrims would follow old Roman roads laid down over a thousand years previously but still standing the test of time. Others, however, were little more than mountain trails. These disintegrated into muddy quagmires, sometimes even washing away in heavy rain. Even horses struggled in such terrain. When the port of Calais finally came into view, this signalled the end of one leg of the journey. Their next challenge was to cross the Channel to the Kingdom of England. Although a relatively short journey, this, like most aspects of medieval travel, was far from straightforward. In order to carry the men and horses, assuming they were all brought across the channel to England, a ship would have to be fitted out with pens made from woven saplings to restrain the horses at sea. 
This alone might take several days to create for a voyage that was pretty short. De Perilos does not mention how long it took, but only stated the weather and winds were favourable, which indicates he may have crossed to England in a number of hours. It would appear he made landfall at the famous White Cliffs of Dover in the southeast of England, but from here he had to cross the entire kingdom and then Wales before he would finally reach the port of Holyhead on the west coast of Britain. This route took him through the famous ecclesiastical city of Canterbury, where the most powerful cleric in Britain lived, and from there on to London. As he moved northwards in general, the cities began to get smaller. London was about a quarter of the size of Paris in 1397. Its population may have been as low as 50,000. From London, de Perilos travelled then to Oxford, where King Richard II of England was holding court. Here, his party broke their journey for 10 days of rest at the court. This was wise, given the most difficult leg of the journey still lay ahead of him. Setting off again in late October, Ramon de Perilos then continued his journey, which took him to the city of Chester in the northwest of England before he crossed the border into northern Wales. By this point, the party were completely dependent on local knowledge for guidance, and a wrong turn could easily take them miles off the route and delay them days potentially. In North Wales, they skirted the foothills of Snowdonia, the mountain spine of the country. The snow-covered peaks in the distance served as a stark warning of the harsh northern European winter that was on the way. They finally reached the port of Holyhead, and if they were maintaining the same rate of travel as they had in the Kingdom of France, they were already well into November when they faced the daunting prospect of an Irish sea crossing. Even in the height of summer, this was far more difficult than the crossing between England and France. Weather could delay the voyage indefinitely. In October 1171, when King Henry II had crossed to Ireland, he had been forced to wait for several weeks in Pembroke before he could leave because of poor weather. The crossing from Holyhead to Dublin takes between one and a half and three hours today, but in the 14th century it was much, much slower. De Perlos first took a ship to the Isle of Man and from there he went on to Dublin. His account wasn't specific but he mentioned this took him several days. While ships had come a long way since the Viking longships that dominate modern perceptions of medieval shipping, sea travel was still a terrifying ordeal. By the 1390s vessels called cogs were the most common ships that plied the waters around Ireland. Although larger than a Viking longship, they were still scarcely much bigger than a modern bus. They did have an enclosed section at one end, but in rough seas this would have been little comfort. Waves soaked everyone on board. For the seasick, this must have been a gruelling experience. Each day of the voyage was surely spent looking to the western horizon, hoping land would finally appear. When the coasts of Ireland finally came into view through the mists... The ship made its way into Dublin Bay, towards the capital of the Norman colony at the mouth of the River Liffey. On reaching Dublin, Ramon de Perlas had travelled over 1,800 kilometres, although some of the most difficult and dangerous terrain lay ahead of him. Now before we enter medieval Dublin with de Perlas, I'm going to take a break for a few adverts here. 
which helps keep the show on the road. Now, if you're a supporter listening on Acast Plus or Patreon, we're going to continue on with the journey. For everyone else, we'll catch up with you after this short break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Having started in Avignon on September the 9th, Ramon de Perilos finally reached Dublin, sometime in early December. Walking through the medieval streets, they found the hallmarks of a city in the grip of a profound crisis. Back in the 12th century, Anglo-Normans had launched a brutal invasion of Ireland, and around 75% of the land had fallen under their control. They and their descendants had flourished for around a century, but the 14th century had proved extremely difficult. And this was evident in the streets of the colonial capital, Dublin. Ninety years earlier, Dublin had still been a small yet thriving city, home to around 10 to 15,000 people. However, repeated famines, plagues, wars and sieges had devastated Dublin in recent decades. Its population may have been halved, Many of the suburbs had been abandoned. If he ventured outside the city walls, the Perilos would have found the ruins of these former suburbs. The houses were now abandoned, their inhabitants long dead, and with a falling population, there was simply no one to rebuild or occupy the dwellings. The Catalan may have started to sense that the road ahead was going to be even more difficult than what he had already completed. Indeed, even in Dublin, he didn't have to venture far to find a war zone. Beyond the ruined suburbs, to the south of the city, lay the Vale of Dublin, a once fertile rich farmland which had produced large quantities of agricultural goods. However, this was increasingly a frontier, as the Gaelic Irish, whose ancestors had been dispossessed by the initial invasion, were starting to attack the colonists with increasing frequency. These raids and attacks were now reaching the outskirts of Dublin. However, de Perilos was more concerned with events to the north, Focused on his ultimate destination, St. Patrick's Purgatory in Donegal, this was territory far beyond the control of the Anglo-Norman authorities. Western Ulster was the power base of the O'Neill family, who had dominated the region for nearly 1,000 years by this point, and they had successfully repelled attempts by the Anglo-Normans to invade their lands. While Ramon de Perilos' letters of introduction from the French king had seen the King of England, Richard II, grant him safe conduct across his lands, these would be of little value in the northwest of Ireland. There was some good news, however. Relations between the king's royal officials in Dublin and the king of the O'Neills, a man called Niall Og O'Neill, were tense but improving. 
a peace of a kind had been established. But still, when the Perilous landed in Dublin, the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, Sir Roger Mortimer, had a stark warning for him. The Catalan later recorded Mortimer's reaction when he told him he had come to visit St. Patrick's Purgatory. I told him of the intention of the journey which I proposed to undertake, and the Lord advised me strongly against it, saying that for two reasons I should not undertake this journey. One was that I would have to go through strange places inhabited by wild people who had no governance which anyone should trust. The other reason was that entering the purgatory was a very dangerous matter, and many good knights had lost themselves there and had not returned. This plea had little influence. The Catalan had, after all, travelled three months to reach Dublin. He was not about to turn back. However, even though the shortest leg of the journey, in terms of miles, now lay ahead, it was hard to say how long this would take. Poor as the infrastructure was in continental Europe, it was far worse in medieval Ireland. Decades of warfare with the Gaelic Irish had taken a huge toll on the Anglo-Norman colony and its infrastructure. Roads were increasingly dangerous. As early as 1297, 100 years previously, a Parliament of Ireland had heard, The King's Highway is, in very many places, so closed up and obstructed by the thickness of the quickly growing wood that scarcely any person, even on foot, can pass. The risks these overgrown roads posed to travel was revealed a few years later, in 1308, when another Parliament heard, The King's Highway from one market town to another ought to be enlarged, where there are woods, hedges or ditches, wherein a man may lurk or do hurt near the road. Since then, the situation had only deteriorated. Ramon de Perilos now had to venture far from the King's Highway, cross a no-man's land between Gaelic-Irish territory and the Anglo-Norman colony, a place referred to as the Land of War, and from there he would have to continue his journey through Gaelic-Irish territory into a society completely alien to his own. As I mentioned, no one could tell him how long this would take. Back in 1315, letters sent by the King of England on July the 10th to several lords in Ireland had been replied to on various dates between September 10th and November 2nd, indicating that travel times could vary enormously depending on the difficulties encountered. Despite the difficulties of the road ahead and the pleas from the Anglo-Norman authorities in Dublin not to continue on, Ramon de Perlis was adamant he would complete his pilgrimage. Faced with his dogged determination, Roger Mortimer, the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland who had tried to convince him not to go on, now did what he could to make the journey as safe as possible, as Ramon explains. The Earl did his best to oppose my going, and when he saw that I was so inclined, he gave me two of his horses and some jewels, and gave me two squires, one called John of Ivry, who guided me through the land which the King of England holds in Ireland, and all the time we were riding did not allow me to spend anything but covered all my expenses to my sorrow, and another called John Talbot, who knew the Irish language. He was my interpreter. The fact that Ramon de Perlos needed an interpreter underscored how much he was heading into the unknown. Now before we leave medieval Dublin and continue on with our journey, it's worth mentioning food that de Perlos would have enjoyed along the route. He had now travelled around 1,500 kilometres and he makes it clear in his account that along the way he was hosted by nobles and royals. The food they would have provided him with would have been sumptuous. However, he obviously couldn't have eaten like this every single day on the road. However, 
it's very unlikely he would have risked eating out in the medieval world. Now, medieval towns and cities did have the equivalent of fast food, but living off this would have incurred a major risk. For example, a bylaw in Dublin from the late 14th century, around this time, warns of the dangers of pies cooked using stale meat. In all likelihood, de Perlos probably brought a cook and cooking equipment with him. The rich favoured this option in contrast to eating out, which they saw as a sign of poverty. A person who ate out clearly did so because they couldn't afford cooking utensils. It was in the final weeks of 1397 when de Perlos left Dublin, but he couldn't travel directly northwest to St. Patrick's Purgatory. The rituals surrounding entering the cave were complex. He first had to receive permission from the Archbishop of Armagh, who was at the time a man called John Colton. Therefore, de Perlos set out to find the cleric and travelled northwards to Drogheda, where he was frequently in residence. Drogheda was another major Irish walled port of the time, located on the estuary of the River Boyne, and there he found the Archbishop, who had only recently returned from Western Ulster himself, but he did little to instil the Catalan with confidence about the road ahead. Colton also pleaded with Ramon de Perilos not to attempt to visit St. Patrick's Purgatory for reasons very similar to Roger Mortimer, who had tried to stop him in Dublin. Given how far the Catalan noble had travelled, these words inevitably fell on deaf ears. Indeed, at this point, Ramon was insistent that he would complete the journey, believing he was on a divine quest, as he later explained. When he knew my wishes, he strongly opposed my journey and strongly advised me not to go on it, saying that over and above the danger of entering the purgatory, neither he nor anyone could make it safe through the lands of King O'Neill or other lords through whose lands I would have to pass before reaching the purgatory. However, the determined Ramon de Perilos remained intent on completing the risks and replied, God ordained for me and confirmed that never would I leave or abandon making my journey. And when the Archbishop saw that he could not shift me from my purpose, he gave me all directions he could and gave me permission to go and heard my confession. The Catalan therefore pressed on towards the frontier by travelling first towards the town of Dundalk, the last Anglo-Norman outpost, a beleaguered frontier town in medieval Ireland. Evidence of the war that was consuming society in Ireland was in plain sight throughout Dundalk. The suburbs of the town had been burned as recently as 1392 by the current king of the O'Neills, Niall Ogue O'Neill. Since then, tensions had eased somewhat and word was dispatched northwards by messenger to O'Neill who was in residence in the town of Armagh, that pilgrims were looking to cross into his territory and travel to St. Patrick's Purgatory. After an anxious wait, these messengers arrived back from O'Neill. Now for the Catalan de Perilos, this was a decisive moment. If the king refused to allow him enter his territory, he would have no option but to return home. However, the Gaelic-Irish king assented, sending word that de Perilos should come and meet him in Armagh. This was one of the most dangerous legs of the journey, as he had to pass through a military frontier. Indeed, the Archbishop of Armagh, who he had met, insisted that he would be accompanied by a retinue of a hundred soldiers along this route. These men accompanied de Perilos five miles outside Dundalk until the land began to rise sharply, guiding him towards a place called the Maori Pass, 
a narrow valley through the hills, the soldiers refused to go any further. Instead, they took up a position on a hill overlooking the road, watching the pilgrims as they moved into the distance. Their reasons for not accompanying them were simple. De Perlos would later recall, The riders dared not go further because they are great enemies, but they stayed on a hill and I took leave of them and went ahead. How many of the original party remained with the Perlos at this point is unclear. There were certainly six, himself, his sons, his nephew and a squire as well as an interpreter sent from Dublin. They had only ventured a few miles into the hills of Armagh when a group of men appeared on the road. As the two groups of riders moved towards each other, it was very clear that these men were Gaelic Irish. But the Perlos had no idea who precisely they were. They may well be from Nyalog O'Neill, but they could easily be bandits. In the long minutes as the horses closed the distance on the road, the words of everyone he had met along the route so far warning him not to venture into the lands beyond the Norman colony presumably echoed through the Catalan's mind. If he were attacked and killed in this no-man's land, so far from home and so far from his ultimate destination, it would be a lonely end. As the distance between them and the approaching horsemen closed, tensions and uncertainty rose. From the most cursory glance at the oncoming riders, De Perlis knew he was entering a very different world. Gaelic Irishmen cut their hair in a unique style known as the Coulon. While the hair was shaved on the crown of the head, it was grown long at the back in a style reminiscent of a mullet. While the two groups of riders met on that lonely road, the delayed nature of communication between the parties only heightened initial anxieties. Words were exchanged, but the perilous remained clueless while interpreters listened and then relayed the full meaning. When the translation finally came out, this was followed by a general sense of relief. These men he had encountered on the road were emissaries from the king, Niall Og O'Neill, sent out to welcome him. As he was led back to the king, De Perilous began to comprehend that, even with haircuts aside, Gaelic Ireland was so different in every way conceivable. He might have travelled nearly 2,000 kilometres at this point, but in the short ride between Dundalk and Armagh, his surroundings had changed more than at any other stage of the journey. De Perilous was so fascinated though by this world that he found, he would end up devoting a large passage in his account of his journey from France to Ireland about Gaelic society, saying, Since their customs and manners are very strange to us, I shall recount for you, as briefly as I can, something of their conditions and manners. Indeed, there were no towns to speak of, certainly nothing along the lines of the towns he had passed through as he had made his way through Europe. The first towns in Ireland had been established back by the Vikings in the 9th century, but the O'Neills in Ulster, into whose land he was now entering, had been successful in repelling their advances and destroyed several of these Norse settlements along their coasts. In the following centuries, the Gaelic Irish had remained dubious of urbanisation and what settlements did exist were small. This lack of large towns and cities had a profound impact on day-to-day life in the Northwest. Without these centres of commerce, Gaelic Ireland failed to attract international trade and there was a very limited money economy. This explains one of the first things Ramon de Perilos noted, the lack of wine. When he met Niall O'Gonil, he was offered food, which he described. 
I went to their king who received me well in their fashion and sent me a gift of food, that is to say beef, because they neither eat bread nor drink wine. The absence of wine was noted by several visitors and it may actually have been getting harder to come by in the 14th century. In the 1360s, as warfare with the colonists increased, a series of laws curbing trade between the colony and Gaelic Irish areas had been introduced. The export of food and drink could only happen now with a special licence from royal authorities and the historian Catherine Sims has noted that the wine the English did export was of the worst quality and almost undrinkable. Given the distillation of spirits was still largely unknown in Northern Europe, the Gaelic Irish therefore drank only ale, mead and a thing called frogget, a honey beer. The lack of bread that de Perlos mentions in the same passage above was probably more to do with the fact that he had reached Ireland in a year of food shortages rather than a general lack of bread. In day-to-day appearance, the people also looked considerably different in terms of dress. In winter, men and women wore a long blanket of a kind, known as a falling, which was wrapped around the person several times and made from wool. Ramon de Perlos, in his account of their appearance, was also shocked by the Gaelic-Irish attitudes toward nudity. He recalled, Both men and women shamelessly show all their privates. Poor people go naked, but they all wear those capes, good or bad, including ladies. Now this does seem contradictory. He mentioned that they wear this cape and they're also nude. But the historian Catherine Sims has posited what this actually means is that the women may have been topless beneath the cape that they wore. So their breasts may have been visible at times. In Gaelic society, women also wore a turban of a kind, which can be seen in depictions of Gaelic society from the 15th and 16th century. Now, having reached Nile O'Neill in Armagh, de Perlos feasted with him in what must have been an extremely strange experience for the Catalan. Gaelic-Irish feasting customs were completely different to the rest of Europe. For example, it was customary to bring in an animal to the feast, slaughter it on the spot, skin it, cut it up, and then boil it in its own hide right there in front of the guests. The hide was strung up between four posts, kind of making a crude cauldron. However, this resulted in uneven cooking, and some of the meat may have been partially raw, which obviously could lead to food poisoning. However, that wouldn't have been that unusual in medieval society. For example, meat roasted over an open fire encounters similar issues of uneven cooking. In the medieval world, it would not have been unusual to chomp into a bit of chicken that was burned on the outside and bloody on the inside. Food poisoning must have been common enough. However, prior to the later 19th century, people did not really understand things like bacteria or sterilisation. And they thought the disease actually spread through the air, so they had no idea why this was happening. One other aspect that must have really shocked Ramon de Perlos at the time was the communal nature of Gaelic society in comparison to the world of the European nobility at the time. At feasts, guests shared a cubicle of a form that was separated from each other by a wicker partition. These cubicles were then used to sleep in, but the idea of sleeping together was considered very important in a political sense It was considered a sign of trust, and to refuse to do so could have caused serious offence. Meanwhile, the houses in which people lived were smoky and dark in comparison to European houses at the time. 
By 1397, the chimney, for example, was increasingly common in larger buildings in continental Europe. And chimneys really helped to take smoke out of a house. However, Gaelic Irish housing still used an open fire in the centre of a room. This meant, though, that smoke built up inside the houses, leaving them really, really smoky. In general, though, Catherine Sims, that historian I've quoted a few times throughout this episode, when reflecting on Gaelic society, described it as one in tune to the natural environment. Like, for example, had Ramon de Perlos arrived a few months earlier, he might have been able to attend one of the clearest demonstrations of this, which was the inauguration of that king of the O'Neills, that's Niall Og O'Neill, who had become king on the death of his father, as I say, a few months earlier. But the entire ceremony that surrounded this harked back to much older traditions that predated Christianity. The inauguration of the king was considered to be a marriage between the ruler and the actual soil and land the kings ruled over. Now, this might have been becoming more symbolic by the 1390s rather than the actual marriage it was once considered to be, but still it harked back to these much older traditions. While the society may have amazed and astounded de Perlos in equal measure, the ultimate reason he had travelled to Ireland, though, was to visit St. Patrick's Purgatory, and he didn't delay too long in the court of the O'Neills. Leaving Armagh, he struck west through Ulster into what must have been ever more inhospitable terrain. Although the final leg of his journey was just 100 kilometres or just 60 miles, he seems to have encountered considerable difficulties along the route. It's worth bearing in mind now he was crossing Ulster in the depths of winter. This was the weeks just before Christmas and he described the conditions in the following terms. It's very difficult to pass on foot and even more so on horseback. Along this route through Western Ulster, there were no alehouses or taverns in Gaelic society. These were just not to be found. However, in what must have been yet another incomprehensible aspect of this society for the Catalan, there were lodging houses along the road designed to provide accommodation for anyone free of charge. So de Perlos would have been sleeping with other travellers as he made his way west across True Ulster. It was in the closing weeks of 1397, however, that he finally reached the shores of Loch Derg. How he felt about this moment is very difficult to comprehend. He was at a place that he believed was now the gateway to the afterlife. He was about to catch a glimpse of what lay ahead after death. He completed the final leg of the journey that's across the waters of Loch Derg in a dugout canoe made from a single piece of wood. Setting foot on Station Island, he then went to the monastery that had been built on the site, where he prepared to enter the cave. Given the numerous warnings about what now lay ahead inside the cave, it comes as little surprise that he gave instructions about where he wanted to be buried if he died and also made a will. As mentioned earlier, the cave was sealed a century later, after the Perilos entered, by a bishop who considered it to be mere superstition, so we actually have no idea what lay within. But we do know that de Perlos was locked inside for 24 hours. Now despite having described every step of his journey across Europe, de Perlos was strangely muted about his personal experience inside the cave. He did write an extensive account about meeting devils, encountering a well that was a gateway to hell, entering purgatory and capturing a glimpse of paradise. But these are definitely not his experiences, real or imagined. This account was clearly a rehashing of a famous medieval myth about the cave, that of a knight from England called Owen, a story that had been widely circulated in Europe since the 12th century. 
This part of the journey perplexes me most. St. Patrick's Purgatory was unlike most other pilgrimage sites in medieval Europe. Other destinations often had the bones of a saint or a relic of one kind or another that the pilgrim would be able to see. The purgatory, however, was entirely different. De Perlis expected that he would find a gateway to the afterlife, not just the remains of a long-dead saint. It's difficult to fully understand what his expectations would have been when he reached Loch Derg. I think it's fair to say most in the 21st century would be highly sceptical, but I'm not so sure we can project these attitudes and beliefs back into the past. It is often assumed our medieval ancestors were less intelligent than we are today, but that wasn't the case at all. They had the same brains and powers of reasoning that we do. However, they did fervently believe that God played an active role in day-to-day life. Now, if one accepts that assumption, then it's not the greatest leap to imagine there might be somewhere on earth that linked this world to the next one. In this context, I kind of feel a degree of pity for De Perlis if he sat in the darkness of the cave and simply experienced nothing at all after everything he had endured. Can you imagine that after spending several months on the road, taking all those risks and then finding out it had essentially been for nothing? Or at least you had experienced nothing. Perhaps the Catalan had a more philosophical take on the pilgrimage though, and maybe the ordeal of getting to Loch Derg and St. Patrick's Purgatory was the trial and challenge, and the cave merely symbolised this. Ultimately, what happened to him inside the cave is anyone's guess. As I mentioned earlier, his own accounts merely repeat an older myth. When he emerged in the low winter light, he faced a long route home during which he would endure the same travails he had on the route out. Perhaps, though, it was eased now by his familiarity with the route. He did successfully retrace his steps, reaching his home kingdom of Aragon in 1394. He went on to write a detailed account of his journey, and it is clear from this that his experiences in Gaelic society in the winter of 1393 had a profound impact on him. Ramon de Perlos lived for another 30 years before he faced the ultimate test of the afterlife, when he died in 1424 at the age of 75. His experiences, unbeknownst to him, had captured Europe as it stood on the precipice of great change. In 1492, Christopher Columbus would cross the Atlantic, which would in time transform not only the Americas, but also Europe In the following centuries, the society that had intrigued De Perlos, that of Gaelic Ireland, would be utterly destroyed. The customs, unique understanding of the world, and many of the historical records of its people were obliterated in a series of conquests and invasions between 1580 and 1650. Meanwhile, the cave on Station Island that he had journeyed to was sealed in the year 1497, but the island would become one of the most visited Irish pilgrimage sites in the 20th century. Labelled the hardest pilgrimage in the world, visitors face a gruelling ordeal of prayer, scant food and no sleep. Its popularity has declined dramatically in recent decades, but each year thousands still do undertake the pilgrimage. That brings an end to this episode. As mentioned at the beginning, if you enjoyed this show, do let me know. Your feedback helps me decide what shows to make in the future. If you want to support the show 
and my work, you can become a supporter today at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. You get exclusive early access to the show and hours of bonus content. Until next time, Sloan. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.